0: this is the podcast for Faith Matters. I'm the host, John Moorhead. I'm privileged today to have as a guest, uh, Dr. Peter C. Hill. And I'm going to read, uh, he's got an extensive bio that I have here, but I'll just read a portion of it and we'll put a more extended bio in the program notes with this episode. Dr. Hill is professor of psychology at Rosemead School of Psychology at Biola University in La Mirada, California. Before coming to Rosemead in 2002, he served for 17 years as a professor of psychology at Grove City College in Pennsylvania. In 2006, he was honored with a faculty appointment at the University of Cambridge as a visiting research fellow at the Center for Advanced Religious and Theological Studies of the Faculty of Divinity. He is an active researcher in social psychology and the psychology of religion where he has authored approximately 100 articles in peer-reviewed journals and book chapters. Uh, speaking of books, uh, he has co-authored or co-edited six books, Measures of Religiosity, The Baker Encyclopedia of Psychology, The Psychology of Fundamentalism and Intratextual Approach, Psychology and Christianity, Integration, Seminal Works that Shape the Movement, and the best-selling Psychology of Religion textbook, The Psychology of Religion and Empirical Approach from 2009, in psychology of religion and workplace spirituality in 2012. Dr. Hill, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you,
1: I uh, enjoy uh, hearing about that, but it doesn't sound like I'm, I must be very intellectually humble, so I'm gonna have to, <laughs> have to deal with that. Deal well, with we'll that.
0: have an opportunity to unpack that. I'm sure you <laughs> okay, are You're one thank of the you. key researchers in this field. Just to set the tone and the context, this is uh, episode four of a four-part series Uh, where we have been exploring evangelicals exercising intellectual humility and multi-faith engagement. And uh, uh, you're going to be talking to us today about the social psychology of it. And in particular, we're going to dive down into the specific considerations related to theistic intellectual humility, where you've done some work. Uh, As we begin, before you kind of summarize a little bit about what intellectual humility is, how did you come to develop a personal as well as academic interest in uh, the, the science of intellectual humility in general and also the theistic intellectual humility in particular.
1: Well I'm, I'm a social psychologist, as you mentioned by training, and uh, that uh, has always uh, been a, a topic of, of interest to me, largely because it is associated often with in the minds of people with religion and I have applied a lot of my social psychological training to uh, the study of religion and religious experience. And it just seemed like humility was going to be uh, a central focus uh, within that application. So it, it was a natural fit, I guess you might say, in some ways. Uh, and there is uh, actually a, an entire division in, in uh, the American Psychological Association, Division 36, which is psychologists who are interested in religious and spiritual issues. And um, in, that, in that group, I uh, discovered that, that there's a whole range of, of psychologists, anywhere from evangelicals that really bring in a theological element to it. Uh, clear over to uh, atheists uh, in, in that group who think that they can explain religion away. And uh, for myself, I, I tend to be more towards the the, the religious end, a uh, theistic uh, uh, view of, of the world. And so that's going to be central to a lot of what I'm going to say. And it just seemed like uh, there needed to be multiple voices. Uh, and, and this was uh, one voice that I felt like I could make a contribution
0: with fantastic now uh, we heard some of this in episode three with Daryl van Tongeren, but uh, repetition is not a bad thing for this kind of subject matter for those of us who don't specialize in psychology uh, can you tell us how are we defining intellectual humility and can you talk a little bit about how long scholars have been focusing on this this is an ancient virtue that philosophers and religions have been uh, adhering or promoting, even though we don't often follow it and tap into it, but how long have academics been looking at this, and how are we defining it?
1: Well, let's deal with the definition uh, question first, and I think anytime we talk about intellectual humility, we have to understand that also in the context of a broader conception of, of just humility in general. And I think after uh, a lot of effort uh, over the past few decades, and I'll get to that time, that that timeline question in just a moment, but over the past few decades, uh, psychologists have taken this as a, a topic of of interest and and potentially a, a rich topic, uh, and so they first started talking about humility in general, and and I think after. Uh, a lot of exploration. There seemed to be some consensus that at the core of what humility is, is an acknowledgement of personal limitations. And if you take that as, as a core, then there's a lot of derivatives uh, that you could talk about. Uh, so for instance, uh, if, if, if there's a personal limitation that, that we acknowledge, then we might be more willing to look at others and what others have to, have to uh, say or contribute. Uh, that there's a te- certain amount of teachability that goes along with that, and so now as it applies to intellectual humility in particular, now we're dealing with questions of of epistemic value, uh, dealing with questions that that where a person acknowledges uh, limitations of his or her beliefs, his or her knowledge, and so I think what has happened is that there's really come about uh, three characteristics now of what intellectual humility involves. One is that it's a willingness to hold beliefs tentatively to the extent that one is willing to revise his or her beliefs or perspectives given a convincing reason to do so. So it's not just anything goes. Second, a willingness to undertake a critical scrutiny of one's perspective, including a balanced consideration of evidence that both supports and refutes one's perspective. Um, I often think of uh, people who watch television or go on certain podcasts or just social media in general. Are they balanced in in getting information? Uh, so you know, are they only watching? Uh, CNBC or Fox News, or are they trying to 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 get a little bit of both sides? Uh, third, that it's a willingness to acknowledge that equally sincere, capable, and knowledgeable individuals may reasonably hold differing views. So, I think I think those are just some of the core concepts that go along with with intellectual humility. Now. You're you're right. This is a, a relatively new topic uh, for for psychologists and for social scientists in general, um, and it has been around for a long time. Uh, intellectual humility is a, is a virtue, an intellectual virtue that that philosophers have talked about for uh, for centuries now. But uh, one of the reasons I think that that humility became uh, of of greater interest is that in the late 1990s, psychology took quite a, a, a step, it was only a step in a different direction, but it was an important step. And that is getting away from studying just what's wrong about people and now trying to find out what's right about people. And so eventually, and I, I remember I was at a, in a, a small group meeting of about 15 or so psychologists back around 1998, And we were even afraid to use the word virtue then, for fear that that was too uh, uh, philosophically loaded with religious meaning. And so we we determined, well, we're going to start off calling these classical strengths. But what we discovered was soon we started to introduce the notion of virtue, and we didn't get the pushback that we were expecting. And, uh, and, and it appears that psychology has made some sort of transformation that centers around and gives a voice at the table for uh, the study of, of uh, virtue. And humility is just one of many virtues that have, has now been studied, including uh, intellectual humility. So uh, th- there has been a, a shift, and I would say it's been a fairly radical shift for about the last two decades.
0: Now, in some of my reading, I've got a off camera here, I've got a stack uh, as well as numerous volumes in my library that I still have to get to. But so far in my reading on this topic, there there tends to be amongst scholars uh, a tendency to, to emphasize the rational emphasis of cognition in looking at intellectual humility. And certainly that's where the epistemic questions come in. But in my reading, I've also seen outside of defining intellectual humility, an increasing recognition of the effective dimension that our emotions work with the rational processes. To what extent, um, do you see value in, in considering, or are, is the effective dimension an important dimension of understanding intellectual humility? I, I definitely think you're,
1: you're right on with that observation. Um, and I think what, what has happened, uh, and there's a, a rub, I guess you might say, in that, uh, much of the research on intellectual humility has centered—I uh, shouldn't say it has centered, but it has considered uh, the role of religion. And by and large, most of the research has suggested that the more committed you are to your uh, religious beliefs and religious faith, the the less likely you are to display intellectual humility. And um, there, there has to be some, some reasons why that's it, because after all, most religious traditions, including Christianity, but but virtually all of the religious, major religious traditions of the world, stress the importance of humility in general. And oftentimes it is applied to intellectual humility. And so um, there, there is this sort of, of uh, uh, misconnection, I guess, that, 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 that's either in reality, uh, something that, that's a fact in reality, for instance, that religious people just simply are not uh, intellectually humble, or maybe it might have to do with the way that we conceptualize uh, intellectual humility. And I think you hit the, hit the nail on the head there, that if you just take sort of an enlightenment view that intellectual humility should somehow involve intellectual autonomy. Uh, then and and you can analyze and look at what is the conscious cognitions that that we have uh, that um, that that is maybe not quite getting at the complete picture, and that there is uh, some some other element. And I think religion more than, other applied topics that we might apply intellectual humility to, whether it be to educational theory, to politics, to to whatever religion, I think involves something that's more deeply held at an affectional level that has to be taken into consideration. Now well, I think there's two. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. You're fine. Uh, ahead. I think there's there's maybe two things that are that are going on here. Here's why religious beliefs. Are uh, different in, in some ways than than other beliefs. First of all, <clears throat> religious beliefs often are often determine a, a, a cultural value. Now, when we think of culture, most people think of you know ethnicity or nationality, or maybe very broad bases of culture, Western culture, eastern culture, and so forth. But culture is all around us, and there are cultures within cultures. And uh, so we can talk about uh, religion as a cultural variable. And you would have even, you know especially in a pluralistic society like here in the United States, uh, you're going to have all sorts of different even religious cultures. Uh, evangelicals might might be quite different than, uh, mainstream uh, Protestants, or quite different than Catholics on some issues. And in a sense, each is a cultural variable. And for people who are strongly religiously committed, uh, often, and, and I'm going to start using the word theistic now, uh, and, and with the idea that there is some sort of, of uh, being, if you want to say that. Uh, Some, and we would use the term God, and most of us would would feel comfortable with using that term, but perhaps it's just simply the sacred or whatever that it might be, but it's an agentic being, and uh, it can be a personal being, and so these actually form uh, a, a cultural worldview that many people, uh, especially people who sometimes are social scientists studying intellectual humility do not share. And for that reason, there's certain worldview assumptions that are going on in the mind of the religiously committed person that perhaps our secular models of intellectual humility are missing out on. And so these are just so foundational. These are, are really cultural variables. So that's one reason why i think religious beliefs are are a special case a second reason i think is that religious beliefs are in from for many people are intrinsically re, uh, relational beliefs that they have and this is where the affective component comes in uh, very strongly you just don't hold an an intellectual doctrine many many christians for for example uh and certainly uh muslims uh, do not see God is just simply an an intellectual idea uh, that this is a, a God that uh, is, is personal, uh, cares about what the activities in the world, cares about maybe even me as an individual. And uh, so there's this intrinsic relationship. And what, what we do know from just human relationships is that the more committed and so forth a, a relationship is, that it's going to evolve involve an affective component. Uh, It's just not, you know, I've got a a wonderful relationship with with my wife, uh, and I can look at it intellectually, but I'm missing out on probably some of its most uh, valuable characteristics.
0: Yeah, a little shameless plug for one of the works that I did, it was published last year, is I co edited and contributed a chapter to a volume on the missing dimension of the effective considerations in multi faith encounters uh, involving Christians. And so this is an area of great interest. And I just wondered at what point it might play a part. Now, you mentioned uh, in some of your work here, you talk, uh, there was an article that I read of yours in the Journal of Positive Psychology where you're talking about the theistic. Uh, e- ideological context of intellectual humility, and you state, uh, you propose that, or you, you quote an author who proposed that current conceptualizations and measures of intellectual humility do not consider how intellectual humility is understood and applied by those who are religiously committed. How has your research tried to address that missing element? Well, one, one of the things that, that we
1: need to acknowledge or recognize right off the bat is that uh, if you adopt or consider, and maybe adoption is not the, the correct word, but if you consider uh, the worldview of, of religiously committed Christians, for example, uh, and perhaps people of other faiths, uh, faith traditions as well, that suddenly your analysis of intellectual humility. Becomes multidimensional, at least two dimensions at the most simple level, because so far intellectual humility is really only been considered on one horizontal dimension, uh, relationships with with other people in in particular. So when I get, went back a, a little while ago and talked about some of those core issues, uh, you know, I mentioned, for instance, that uh, other people, equally sincere and capable and knowledgeable people, might might hold a, a differing view that's that's a horizontal consideration and that's the, been the entire focus of of intellectual humility but if you take the world view into account of religiously committed people there is now a vertical dimension that that has to be considered and it's compounded by the fact that for many people this involves a, a, a strict uh, um, uh uh, an, ex, an expanded consideration that involves the affectional component that we just, just mentioned. So we, what we did was we looked at five of the most used measures of intellectual humility. And measurement has been something that in, in the study of intellectual humility that there's been a large focus on. If we can't measure it very well, then, uh, then we can't do much uh, empirical study. on on the topic. So there's been a a number of measures that have been developed. And we looked at the five uh, most common measures. And what we noticed was that if we took the individual items and and these measures uh, are are really just people answering questions, uh, typically on a strongly disagree to strongly agree continuum. Uh, and some of them involve religious items. And what we started to notice, we I think we ended up with something like 65 different items that had religious content or close to religious content in, uh, in, uh, articulated in the items. And we discovered that about half of those items were negatively, the more religiously committed a person was, the less likely they were to show intellectual humility. And then on the remaining half, a few were positively correlated with, with with intellectual humility, so that people who were religiously committed were showing signs of intellectual humility. But there weren't very many of those, and then there was a large group that was just simply not correlated. So we looked at those that were negatively correlated, and we started to, to analyze those in in, in uh, greater detail. And from that, we created a scale. And I'm not going to go into the details of, of that. That's uh, uh, really, uh, I, I've discovered in my teaching and research methods uh, over the years that uh, that can put people asleep really fast. But what we came up with was uh uh, 11 items that really stood out they tended to cluster together and uh and then when we did further analysis we discovered that there were really three clusters in these 11 items of, of of uh questions so let me just let me just mention what those those three clusters are and i'll give you an example item of each So one of the clusters was what we ended up calling intellectual submission to the divine. All right. So here's an example. Uh, I try to submit all of my intellectual efforts to God. Now, that particular question or that particular item, I should say, was taken off of another scale, and it was shown to be an indication of low intellectual humility. And I think the reasoning behind that was quite simply that, well, you, you think you have all the answers uh, uh, because you've got this direct line to God. So that's one, one, one uh, f- factor, intellectual submission to the divine and an example item. A second one was human finite limitations. So there were a, a group of questions, four questions that clustered around human finite limitations. So, for instance, uh, I don't expect to have all my questions answered, but I'm confident in God's knowledge. Once again, with most of the measures of intellectual humility, that comes across as being negatively related to intellectual humility. That's not showing intellectual humility. So we have two factors, intellectual submission to the divine, human finite limitations, and then the third factor and I'm, I'm stressing this, uh, it's a very important point, that there's belief bias and limitations that we have. So here's an example. When I approach a passage in the Bible, I'm aware that I have my own biases. Okay. So that was a third third um, uh, factor. Now, that particular item was actually one that was positively related to intellectual humility. Now. The first two factors, and here's our argument, those first two factors, intellectual submission to the divine and human finite limitations, really are, they're addressing specifically uh, uh, theistic beliefs. And that third factor, belief bias and limitation, addresses one's epistemological biases and limitations in understanding the complexities of religious belief and experience. So it's not really a theistic item. Now, what we ended up doing, we took that scale, those 11 items, and we started to measure how people scored on those 11 items. So we got an overall measure based upon the whole scale. But more importantly, we started to look at the individual factors and how did they relate to topics of, of uh, that, that we would refer to as perhaps virtuous topics, or at least topics that positive psychology is interested in. And so one of the things that, that we looked at was uh, just the a measure of flourishing, of well-being that the person is having. We also looked at a measure of meaning, meaning making, and, and much of this ties in with, with Dr. Van Tongren's uh, research that he's done and In fact, we used some of his measures. Then we also looked at things like that that psychology is typically related to, for instance, anxiety and, and depression and so forth. And here's what we found. We found that when those first two factors, the theistic factors with a religiously committed population that as religious commitment increases, people who score high on religious commitment But And they score in the the intellectual humility direction on the two theistic factors. They showed greater flourishing. They showed greater sense of ultimate needing. They experienced less depression, less anxiety. Now, all of this is based on self-reports, okay? The third factor, which is not a theistic factor, was unrelated to all of those things. And and even, uh, I believe, on one or two of them was was negatively related, but it wasn't a strong negative relationship. That's suggesting to us that you have to take into account some of the assumptions and worldviews of of people. And once you take into account, in in this case, a theistic worldview, a theistic assumption that people are making, uh, that, that they can, and, and in fact, those who do experience it. And, and I should say this, that that people do not ex- uh, universally experience uh, intellectual humility. So you're going to have individual differences among religious people. Some people hold religious convictions and beliefs and are, uh, and, and are not intellectually humble. And some people are, and it's that variation that we're looking at and those who are intellectually humble and yet still maintain their their theistic beliefs, even strongly, even even to the point that you might call it a conviction, those are the people that flourish, those are the people that, that find ultimate meaning, those are the people that, at least in our result, correlational research by the way, it's not causational research that we've done, uh, those people do not experience anxiety or depression as much.
0: Well as I was listening to you describe those various facets of your research, I think you kind of got there towards the end of your comments there. Simply because somebody has a strong conviction that their knowledge is uh, they submit their, their understanding to the will of God, that can go in more than one direction. On the one hand, it can result in, you know, God God has given me the truth, capital T, and anybody who doesn't hold that as somehow inferior. Uh, or it can say, look, you know, I'm humble in my knowledge, and uh, God has uh, constantly shown me how to improve that along the way. It can go in multiple directions. So, do we understand why uh, different people who would fall under the umbrella of theistic intellectual humility would have these differing views, even though they're holding the same kinds of ideas? Right. Well, I, I do think uh, it, it comes
1: back to. Some of those reasons that make religious beliefs unique—that uh, uh, that that they're, they are foundational for for worldviews, and uh, and there and therefore they are existentially important. I, I didn't say that earlier, but I, I think that's what's what's so uh, so unique about religious beliefs versus many of the other beliefs that we have. They are existentially important and they are intrinsically relational. Now, some folks <laughs> because those are such powerful motives. Uh some folks have a very difficult time uh being flexible with 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 any of those uh beliefs that that, that are there. And so we do have uh, religious fundamentalists uh who who uh would not be open to any consideration of, of discussion about any uh, any of these. Um, and we also have individuals who uh, can still be- have these beliefs and, and strongly believe them, but recognize and acknowledge our limitations in understanding, fully understanding of, of those and that we might be able to learn from others, even people of other traditions. So, it, it, part of it depends upon. I think it's just individual differences. This is maybe where personality gets gets uh, involved in the equation as well. There might be a fundamental distinction between. Does it, fundamental motive distinction here be between desiring to persuade when we are talking with people of of other faith traditions or just simply people of no no uh, faith tradition versus a desire or a motive to understand? And um, I personally think that that uh, Christians, conservative Christians especially. Have have emphasized a desire to persuade so much that it creates walls oftentimes. And, and I'm not so sure it's the most effective way of persuading. I think sometimes a more effective way if 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 one were really trying to persuade is to first understand. But I even even then I I would I would prefer to think of these as as primary motivations and that there's a huge difference that that's that's going on when you are trying to persuade you're always trying to you're in a very defensive position and you're always trying to think of how to answer something so this is where that person's comment is wrong this is where that person's comment uh le- leads one astray Whereas if you're trying to understand, you are looking for some commonalities. And this, is, this does not mean that one uh, needs to, to give up what they believe. Uh, nowhere in the, in the uh, literature, even in the secular literature, is there an assumption that you just don't hold beliefs. Uh, no, you hold them. Everybody has beliefs, whether they be religious or not. And some of those are strong, strong beliefs. As a matter of fact, in 1987, the president of the American Psychological Association, they always give an annual address, and uh, then it's printed in the flagship journal, The American Psychologist. And the, the president that year, Robert Abelson, said that there's there's one problem that we have in psychology. This was back in 1987. And he says, we aren't studying what people really care about. And the, the title of, of his of his talk was Conviction. And 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 so I, people have strong beliefs, uh, regardless of whether they be religious or not.
0: I really think you're on to something there with persuasion. That has been one of my critiques of my own tribe, is that we invest so much in persuasion that we often... Uh, turn people into means to the end. And I, I wonder if sometimes the attempt at persuasion, while well-meaning and they think they're persuading, is in reality many times a form of identity and boundary maintenance and defense. Um, so that they're not really trying to speak to the other, they're really reinforcing their own self-perceptions about their religion and the way the world is.
1: Yes, psychologists often make the d- distinction between us and them. And uh, that does tend to create that, that boundary. And, and, of course, we get reinforced by other members of our tribe. Uh, that, and, yeah, you know, preach it, brother. And, and, uh, and what we're, if we're not so sure what it's doing to the, to the other side as well. It might be uh, just a strong uh, uh, connection with their particular worldviews or their particular assumptions that, that are being reinforced
0: primarily in opposition to what you're saying. Since this podcast is talking about intellectual humility in the context of evangelicals and other Christians in multi-faith contexts, can you speak to intellectual humility uh, in the context of religious tolerance? Um, What role does humility play? What kinds of psychological obstacles get in the way of us exercising humility in that context? And is, is there anything that you see, that's unique for theists in that regard.
1: Well, certainly, uh, from a, a theological perspective, uh, there are certainly uh, things. Uh, for instance, in the in scripture, talks about the the righteous mind, uh, and uh, and there are certainly some things that are right and good, and. That is going to be often culturally defined. but there are certain some things that I think are, are maybe if not universal near universal, okay? And um, and we we need to recognize that those those uh, those the, the good things. and that's what virtue is. Virtue is promotion of what's good. The, the question is, how do you define what, what is good then? And so I think that you you, you must have some sort of, of standard. Now, to what extent do you tolerate uh, deviations from that standard? So it, that often depends upon upon what it is that's the issue in front of you. Uh, for instance, uh, uh, to, to practice, uh, some sort of of uh, deviant uh, sexual behavior, uh, or uh, to uh, deal with, with questions involving uh, supremacist uh, thinking. There's lines to be drawn, and uh, and you you don't tolerate uh, above that uh, across that line. That said, I think we, we have to be—we uh, have to acknowledge uh, where do we draw those lines, and and what is uh, uh, acceptable and what is not. But you know something, I, since we're talking about interfaith dialogue, what you're going to find is a lot more commonality about where those lines should be drawn than you are going to find differences about where where lines are to be drawn. Uh, ultimately, in in that the, most of the questions are not dealing with a lot of social issues as much as they are dealing with the heart of what a tradition believes. And so that's where you simply acknowledge and respect uh, what other people think and believe. Uh, and you try to understand, and you try to develop in your own tradition uh, that that what, what implications are from that understanding. And then, uh, and, and you, you move on. Um, is that toleration? Well, I, I would say there is a certain degree of toleration that's there. It's not that natural impetus to to lash out, uh, or to disagree, uh, or to try to convince or to try to persuade. But you just simply uh, learn from that and, and acknowledge it. If it crosses the line, then you know there there is a, a need to 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 um, to step out. I know one of the the um, I'll call it just secular analyses of intellectual humble uh, humility is that you go with what you think is right until you're convinced that you either have to modify or revise that position, or maybe even change that position. But you go with what you think is right, and that's the that's the default option. And if it, uh, at almost an affective gut level, it seems to be right to you, then you then you then you go with that. But you listen and respect people who hold other, differing views.
0: Uh, I've heard it said and and read things by uh, not only different religious adherents, but uh, also from some scholars, that the problem in regards to multi-faith conflict is exclusivism. That if you hold that your religious tradition, uh, and of course many Christians do this, I would count myself in that, yours is true or truer than, than other options that are out there, that that does not foster intellectual humility. And yet, uh, I am a part of a network uh, of many evangelicals and other Christians that are exclusivists and yet do exercise intellectual humility. And so some scholars have suggested it's not religious commitments like that. One doesn't necessarily have to be a pluralist and say all religions are somehow true, that there are other factors like right wing authoritarianism. Uh, what would your uh, thoughts be on that? Well, I'm, I'm glad you, you, you brought that up.
1: Um, so one of the the, there's a a substantial amount of research done on religious fundamentalism and there was a a particular scale uh, developed by two very highly respected uh, uh, psychologists uh, Robert Altmeyer and Bruce Hunsberger and they developed a scale on religious fundamentalism that is by far the most widely used scale and Lo and behold, we we discovered after the scale had been used a lot to measure religious fundamentalism that once you factored in or you got a measure of right wing authoritarianism and uh, you measured that along with the religious fundamentalism, you discovered that it they really uh, said about the same thing. And, and, and the argument is that it's not really religious fundamentalism that we're, we're measuring. We're really measuring right wing authoritarianism. So we actually developed uh, a, another idea, and this was uh, uh, my the, the brainchild behind this was uh, my colleague Ralph Hood. And uh, it, we developed a, a, a conceptual distinction on on measures of fundamentalism. And we called it an intratextual. Uh, approach to understanding fundamentalism. So, what you have to first do is go in and try to understand what it is that a person believes on their terms, not on your terms. Okay, and that's one one area. I think that's a, a really important point because social scientists, psychologists. I mean, after all, we do have to have our theoretical frameworks for for our empirical work and 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 uh, conceptualization. But we tend to do that strictly on our own terms, and we don't take the time to often get to know the culture with which we're dealing, especially when we are dealing with a unique culture, such as religious fundamentalists. And so we developed this measure that said, let's look at how a person views their what is sacred to them. For Christians, that was the Bible. Okay. And try to understand where they are coming from uh, with with regards to uh, uh, their view of scripture. And let that be the definition versus this militant kind of of, uh, definition of fundamentalism that really reflects just right-wing authoritarianism. Now, it's not to say that that's wrong, but it's just simply saying that you're really tapping into something different than just fundamentalist beliefs that that, that, that are going on. So um, so w- what we discovered is that that people have some very good good reasons uh, to to hold to um, th- their what they believe is right. And it's for uh, fundamentalists of, of a Christian variety, it's their beliefs of what Scripture has to, has to say so that's what we call this introjection we have a measure that that tries to get it that. now you can hold to what you believe is right and let it be all encompassing okay which means any peripheral belief has to fit into that systematic framework it has to fit into you know, if you can't come up with scriptural justification for it it must be wrong and that's that's what now we would call from an intratextual model a fundamentalist versus somebody who still has high regard for scripture, but who also recognizes there's a lot of peripheral beliefs that are out there, peripheral to what scripture has to say. And uh, I teach in a in a program that that directly teaches this: that let's take the best that psychology has to offer and let's integrate it into a a religious framework. And that's the notion of integration. Um, And you know something I have found out? That that doesn't weaken, that doesn't dilute what one believes uh, by and large. Most of our students, myself included, when I went through a secular program, uh, once I started to integrate some of this into my thinking, it made me all the more strongly appreciative of the tradition that 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 I came from, the religious tradition that I came from. Um, I'm not scared about about what integration. You know, it's it's an old cliche. I know all truth is God's truth and so forth. But I really believe that.
0: I work for uh, the Foundation for Religious Diplomacy. And uh, I remember years ago, one of my first meetings with the president of the organization, you know, he's, a big, intellectual humility is a big part of what we do, and trying to teach others. And he asked me, he said, do you think this can be taught? Or is it something that people just kind of have as a part of their personality? And uh, I might may be wrong here. I certainly think that personality and experience and beliefs and all of this play a part and can account for the differences. But I do think that it can be imparted in some way. What kinds of, of things can be done to help uh, a person adopt a more intellectually humble position? It's interesting that you ask that because
1: um, I, I wish I, I could answer that about three years from now. Uh, the reason is that we just received uh, a grant. Uh, I'm not the principal investigator. I'm only going to play a small part on the project uh, from the John Templeton Foundation on whether or not we can we can develop programs that will foster or facilitate humility and particularly intellectual humility. And so we have several different uh, ideas about about it. Uh, hypotheses, if you will. But uh, but right now, we don't know how accurate uh, we're going to be with, with those. I, I will say that <clears throat> there is a fundamental dilemma that we have here. And that is that, on the one hand, humility is sometimes it's been referred to as the, the quiet virtue. And, uh, it's not something that takes center stage. And in fact, one idea that, that is under, that undergirds the concept of humility and including intellectual humility is, um, that you don't have to have such a, a self focus. Okay. That you can, in a sense, sort of forget the self, uh, at times. Well, one of the problems is if we're going to intervene and try to promote and facilitate humility, the focus must be on the self uh, to some extent. So there is this this dilemma that that we have. Um, My own views are that you don't foster humility by telling people that they have to be more humble. Uh, you don't foster humility by uh, even maybe even using the word humble or humility. That you come up with more nuanced and and um, um, uh, alternative approaches, such as recognizing the contribution of others, uh, looking at your own successes in life and recognize how things had to fall a certain way. Uh, that it wasn't all your own doing. Uh, And maybe to get people to reflect along those lines. And then the other thing that I think is crucially important in trying to teach humility is exactly what your podcast is trying to do and uh, what your organization does. And that is it brings people together. And uh, I'm a member of uh, Braver Angels, And I really appreciate that particular uh, organization. It deals primarily around political uh, issues and and social issues that are are politically laden. Uh, But one of the things that in going to some of their workshops, one of the things their initial workshop is where you, 12 reds and 12 blues are sitting across the table from each other and you first talk and literally across the table. Okay, all the reds are on one side, all the blues are on the other side. And it's sort of uh, an understanding that there are going to be differences. But you first have some some discussion with other members of your position, if you're a red, you meet with other reds, if you're a blue, you meet with other blues. And you talk about uh, some of the issues and why and so forth. And you identify some of the commonalities. Then later is when you start teaming up with members of the other side. And what you discuss and, and what you discover is often the discussions that you had with members of your own side, the us, ends up being very similar to the discussions with the them. And that, my own experience, and this was years after I started studying humility, was there was a lesson for me on humility there. Uh, That that other side had some things to say that I needed to hear said that I hadn't considered before.
0: So it sounds like contact with the other in a strategic kind of way can help facilitate that kind of thing.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And 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 just working together for common good—that's what comes across. There is a commonality that's that's often there that we disregard or just are, are ignorant of, and uh, and we discover that boy, that that is a very strong motivation to 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 experience that commonality and to try to facilitate it.
0: One final item, Dr. Hill, to, to get your feedback on as we bring our conversation to a close here. Uh, again, going back to something I asked about earlier, where there's this tendency to emphasize rational and the rational and the cognitive aspect of defining intellectual humility and the idea that you go into it with the acknowledgement that you could be wrong and that you want to be informed by the other. However, um, We're we're focusing on the story of a group of Buddhists and evangelical Christians who've been coming together for now 20 years in Portland as a case study, but they're not the only ones. We're a part of a network of Christians across the country who in churches are meeting with whether it's Muslims or Buddhists or pagans or what have you. And as far as their self-understanding as they report it, they haven't gone into these things saying, you know what, I want to talk to a Muslim because I think I could be wrong about not only Islam, but maybe understanding my own faith tradition. They seem to understand it more as a, a humble confidence. That is, they, they believe that their worldview is right, and, and their conversation partners believe their worldview is right, and yet neither is threatened by the other. They're not fearful. They're willing to go into this conversational space, develop relationships, have conversations, and then over the course of time, certainly they, they come to new understandings and realize that some of their, their views they held before were stereotypes and, and they're making adjustments. So is it, is it more appropriate to, to think of it conceptually in that way as a humble confidence? I, I like that.
1: Uh, and I hadn't thought of it just that way before. Um, but even the example I just gave with Braver Angels, uh, how it was strategically set up that you discuss, first of all, even with with folks on your your own position before you meet with folks in, in the other position. Um, I think that is sort of uh, part of that that reasoning that's there that you don't have to undermine what you believe. Uh, you don't and in fact, it might help reinforce what you believe. And and so there is that perhaps humble confidence that that's that's there. Um, I think the tricky part is how much of it is a humble confidence and how much of it is just a a, a non humble, for lack of a better term, right now. I don't want to call it an arrogant com, uh, confidence, but uh, but in in how to ascertain how, how much. Uh, uh, Humility is really being experienced in that process, but I think you're on to something there, Uh, and and I think it it makes sense. See, the whole view of humility, that it's somebody without a a spine, without uh, an ability to articulate what he or she believes, uh, the weak, the timid, that is that's what is conjured up in so many people's minds about, about humility and being humble. And that is far from the truth. Humble people have to have a certain regard for themselves. Uh, they have to have a certain level of self-esteem uh, in order to to really be humble, to be willing to step out and to respect what other people have to say. So I think to the extent that 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 whole process helps undergird some of those necessary uh, characteristics of 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 uh, self-regard, I think is is very important. It fits right in theoretically what what you're saying it fits right in theoretically
0: with what a lot of the literature says Well Dr. Hill, we're at the end of our time, and I just appreciate uh, the research that uh You've been doing you and your colleagues and my hope is that uh, folks who are watching and listening can uh, can see the example of this case study and what's being done and how the scientific research helps helps us understand ourselves as well as the other and hopefully creates a, a better world in the process
1: thank you thank you very much for having me on your on your podcast
0: my guest today again has been dr peter hill and uh, if you look at the program notes you'll find his bio and links to some of his works. And uh, please check out the other episodes in this four-part series on evangelicals and multi-faith engagement who are exercising humility in that process. I'm John Moorhead, the host of the Multifaith Matters, uh, Matters Podcast. Thank you for watching and listening.